everybody, and welcome back to Don't Quit Your Day Job. It is uh, just before Thanksgiving, and I have the ultimate turkey on the show today. Wow. <laughs> His name is Mark. Marky T, as he hates to be called, Mark Tremalia. Hey, Mark. How you doing, Polly Ann? You doing good? <laughs> yeah. Things good in, in Pittsburgh? Everything is it great. It's, it's very, very cold in Pittsburgh. I will say that. Is it, I, look how cold it is here. <laughs> yes. Mark, so when when I uh, when Mark and I first started talking today, I noticed he was showing off his guns. So you can't you can't see it out there in podcast land, but he is really showing off the guns today. I'm huge. I, I mean, I don't want to say anything to brag, but you know, I mean, I'm I'm pretty pumped. I, I think I'm I'm benching like 74, 75 pounds right now. Wow. So, you know, yeah, I'm up there. That's more than just the bar. <laughs> I think benching. Oh, oh, never mind then. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, so I would like to start today with um, with thinking going back to the late '80s, early '90s. When I when I think about some of those bands, especially at the end of the hair metal era, um, there were some bands that never really broke through, right? So they had a video on MTV or something, um, but it was really at the tail end of that that whole scene, and and they never broke through, and. I don't know if it's fair to lump them in because they weren't really part of that scene, but maybe you can clarify all of this. So I remember Kicks from Connecticut, like East Coast band, and then I remember them sort of poking through a little bit with um, with some videos on MTV. Um, what do you remember about Kicks, that band in particular? And the reason I'm asking is because I always felt like they're one of those bands that never kind of got a fair shake. They you know, they were not in this scene or they weren't glam enough for that scene or, or whatever. What, what was your feeling being in that? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I thought they were pretty popular. There weren't a lot of bands that sounded that ACDC just straight ahead rock and right. they had good choruses and they had a singer who jumped all over the place and they weren't super gimmicky in their like attire. Like they didn't try to be pretty boys, but they dressed for the era, you know? And mm -hmm. I mean, Brian still looks as cool as he did back in the day. He always had that like English rock star kind of look. And I mean, they, they definitely like broke through that. Don't close your eyes. I think, you know, was a, actually billboard, maybe top 10, maybe up there somewhere. Um, I'm trying to look right now, actually, because I know, I know it, it definitely did, 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 did draw some attention. And then that Blow My Fuse record did great. I mean, the band technically was formed in 1977, I'm looking at right. here. Right. And it's been mostly the same guys that have been in that band. And I mean, they have, I mean, their discography is pretty, pretty good too. They probably got like 10 or 15 albums out there. And, um, you know, the highest charting one was Blow My Fuse at 46, but the singles, I think did, did okay, did okay for them. So I, I mean, answer your question. I don't know that they ever did really break through and become huge, but they've definitely been a band that sells out places they play these days. You know, if they play the appropriate size venue, I think they, they still do good. And, um, I think they're going to be on that monsters of rock cruise with us. And, uh, Brian also plays in that band Rhino Bucket too. Okay. So, so just to, to linger on this for a second, I, I definitely remember uh, kicks from from high school. I remember some friends really digging that record, uh, "Blow My Fuse" in in particular. Um, but were they part of like that scene? So I'm really thinking of like Cinderella or Warrant or you know that sort of thing. They didn't. They weren't really part of that, were they? 
think so. No, no. I, they were just like a straight ahead rock band. And I think that might have been part of their detriment is that they didn't like fall into the glam thing. Like they might have sprayed their hair a little, but they didn't go like full makeup, full clothes or whatever. I mean, they still pretty much wore jeans and leather, you know, and sort of like GNR before GNR right. in the look and attitude. You know what I mean? Not so much the music, obviously, but right. But uh, I mean, you know, when I talk to Brian, they still they play almost every weekend and their shows are pretty much sold out. So, I mean, they still have like a pretty, pretty big following out there. I mean, those MTV videos helped and Don't Close Your Eyes having a single that, you know, went up the charts, I think definitely helped, too. When you think about Kicks versus Little Caesar, are there a lot of similarities in terms of career trajectory? Little Caesar was was again, I would argue in my recollection more popular than Kicks around no. like the time of that first album, but but definitely not. Okay. No, I mean and, and the thing with Kicks is they were a huge local act. I mean, in Maryland to this day, they are still a band that commands headlining everywhere. I mean, they headlined the amphitheater at the M3 Rock Festival because Kix is that band, you know? I mean, we were lucky to be on the bill, you know? So, I mean, they definitely have. And they have history, you know? I mean, that band, it's almost all the same members. The songwriter, bass player retired some years ago. Um, But that band since 77 has been just trudging and playing as much as they can and, you know, touring constantly. I mean, Little Caesar did some touring, you know, they had, they, they were lucky enough to open up for Kiss in arenas, which mm-hmm. was great, but I mean, Kicks did Aerosmith, they did Kicks, right. they did, yeah, I mean, okay. Kiss, they did, I mean, they, they had a lot of big, big tours when I look back on stuff they did. Right, right, that may, that makes sense, and, and I think that provides some, some perspective on, you know, again, it's one of those things, like, in my experience, I remember this, and I, I remember liking the Little Caesar, that first Little Caesar record, um, more than I liked Kiss, even though lots of my friends at the time really, really were, were into Kicks, not Kiss. I keep saying Kiss, I think. I said guilty. I just keep doing the same thing. It's hard. I mean, it's, it's um, the same syllables. <laughs> so how did you get friendly with, with Brian Forsyth? Because I know that, that you guys are buddies now. Yeah, uh, I met him back in, I'd say, 93 or 94. Uh, Kicks broke up for a little while. Um, you know, the Nirvana thing was really hitting, and Kicks, they did a couple records that uh, didn't really catch on, and I think they were on RCA. I think they got dropped, and Brian had family out here, and so he was out here, like, working a day job, and uh, he and I jammed a couple times, and I was playing with the singer for... Um, bang tango Joel this day we had a side band called the vagabonds and I said Joe what we should just bring Brian in to have a second guitar I mean he's great and so we rehearsed with him and you know we did a bunch of originals but we also did a bunch of covers you know and so we do like fortunate son and stuff like that and Brian would take all the lead stuff on all that and he was he was great you know and he and I just both were, were mutual guitar buddies you know so we talk gear we talk playing we talk we know a lot of the same people and have jammed together a bunch and he was kind enough to loan me uh his 72 les paul for one of my bang tango tours at the at, right before the tour started joe and kyle said hey we want to save money and cut out the second guitar player so do you mind doing all the parts and i was the strat guy at that point and i was like sure but i'm gonna need you know a less paul and i mean at that point i was playing in bang tango i didn't really have access to money to get a less paul and you know i was talking to brian about it he goes hey i got a 72 i'm you know he was he's mainly a telly guy these days you know i mean i know he uses a, a paul for some stuff um and so 
he said, yeah, you can borrow it. And so I used that. And then when we did our live record, uh, Bang Tango Live from uh, Bill, the Key Club or Billboard Live, whatever it was called, the venue, um, I used Brian's guitar on that. So it's funny to think of you as a Fender guy because I've certainly seen you play a telly every once in a while, but I don't know that I've ever seen you play like a Strat for any for, mm. for anything, um, to me, you're either playing an SG or a Les Paul. So, so what happened? Were you actually a Fender guy back then? I was a, I was a big Fender guy. Fenders, uh, uh, Strats and Tellies was really all I played for a long time until maybe the mid '90s when Joe and Kyle decided that you know we didn't need a second guitar player. Mark, figure out how to combine both those. I mean, it's a two guitar band. There's a lot of parts. <laughs> And so I had to spend, you know, a couple of weeks just woodshedding and figuring out how to make two parts one, you know. But the one thing I knew was the Strat was not going to cut it because no matter how much gain I put on it, it still sounded like a thin, thinner version of this band. Right. And so, you know, I just that's when my obsession with Les Paul started. I borrowed Brian's and then it was like, I got to get one. And I had a, a Les Paul, a black Les Paul Deluxe that I used for a while. And then um, I after that one, I got my sunburst that I've been using ever since got the gold top in between there and, and SG all in between all that too. And I just kind of the telly and strat both just kind of sit on, sit on the rack. And if I need it for a sound when I'm recording or something, I use it. And, um, but I'm actually going to break out the strat today for a session I'm going to play. And uh, I've been using the telly with the Grusados, and I might bring the Strat into the Grusados instead of the telly. Okay. So I've been been messing around a little bit, you know, because the Grusado is just I need three guitars no matter what. I need a Gibson sound, I need a Fender sound, and I need a garage sound. So I have the Harmony guitar for that all the time. And then it's like, do I use a Paul or an SG, or do I use a telly or a Strat? And that's right, kind of right. what I've been going through with all that. So, And I've been using the Paul and the telly, so now I think I'll use the Strat and the SG just for fun. Cool. So to, to wrap up the, the Brian Forsyth in, in the in the kick story. So you guys basically stayed friends for for the for the past 30 years as you moved in and out of bands. And was there ever any discussion to besides the Vagabonds to try to put a more serious thing together? Or once Kiss, Kicks decided to get back together, that was sort of that. And that was sort of that. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was a band to make some money and do some shows more than trying to get a record deal. Okay. Like we played every Tuesday night at the Coconut Teaser. We had residency, so we'd have people come out all the time. That was the band like Randy Castillo sat in and Ray Gillen sat in and, you know, a lot of guys would come. Mike Starr from Allison Chains would come down. And so it was always fun because we could get some cool people to sit in here and there. And, you know, we knew we had something to do every Tuesday night and then we'd rehearse like or play other shows on other nights of the week. So we, okay. we stayed pretty busy. And then what happened was Bang Tango got that record deal where I did the live record. I did the greatest hits record. Um, and in between all that, we toured a bunch. And that's where, you know, Brian went and played. He went actually did play with a couple other bands. There was one band that uh, my wife Kelly loved, and I cannot think of their name off the top of my head, but Catfish was the name of the band. And they were they had a great singer. I think his name was Steve Styles. And this band was kind of like a Black Crow sounding band. They were really good and they they never broke. And then, you know, I was off with Bang Tango, he was off with Kicks, and he went back to Kicks and didn't need a day job anymore with that band, and then also joined Rhino Bucket. And it's funny because, you know, playing in Bang Tango, we played with Rhino Bucket a bunch, but even funnier than that is I just uh, loaned Brian my head for a Rhino Bucket gig about two weeks ago and brian now lives in nashville so if he needs okay. gear 
the singer George lives out here. So I, I hooked up with George and he and I were talking and I, it reminded me that I moved, I came out here to move to LA to see if I would like it. And the very last night we were here, we went to the coconut teaser and we saw love, hate rhino bucket and kill for thrills. And that sealed the deal. I was like, and those three bands were super cool. And uh, that's what made me want to move out here. And I told him, I said, I saw you at the teacher. He goes, oh, my God, that was the one club we played. He goes, I'll be honest, Mark, we never really had a big draw. He goes, but we had some songs and the record labels like the tunes. And that kind of brought some people to us. He goes, but really, you know, we were like a 30 person show if we were lucky, you know. And I'm like, wow, I, you know, I always looked at you guys bigger than that. You know, like I always thought you guys were much more successful in the local scene, especially, you know. But, you know, they tore those guys are the touringest road dogs I know. I don't know any band that tours as hard as them. I mean, when they go out to Europe, like when Little Caesar goes out, you know, we go out for three or four weeks and we, you know, we'll take at least one to two days off a week, you know, let the singer save his Mm -hmm. voice, let Ron save his voice and everything. But like Rhino Bucket, it's insane. They'll go out for 60 days and they'll play 58 shows. Like, and I'm not even kidding. And, you know, (laughs) like I know last time they did that, they missed one show and they were bummed. And it's like, I don't know how they do it, how they keep it up. And it's not like, you know, people think touring is a vacation. It's pretty grueling, you know? I mean, you're carrying your gear and you're setting up, you're driving hours, you're sleeping minimally, you're dealing with different people every day, you know, you're dif- dealing with different electricity in, in different countries. Like, right. you just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, on tour, I had a, a, a pedal board issue that wouldn't work in this one crazy town in Germany right by Liechtenstein, but it worked for the rest of the tour without an even issue. Like you wouldn't think anything was wrong. So, you know, but, but did, did you get the, whole yeah, I, I got board? all that. Yeah. Uh, but you're so skilled that you don't need a pedal board, Mark, right? Can't you just like play and the magic comes out of your fingers, no matter what's happening. I mean, it, I, I'm not trying to sound sarcastic, but I, I'd much rather not use pedals, but I need okay. them for certain songs. You know, it's really what I need them and playing in a two guitar band. Sometimes, I just can't get over the guitar. I need a little bit of character change in my tone just to cut through on solo. So I, it's, it's more of like, uh, of adding a little salt or, you know, sugar to your recipe rather than, you know, being the whole meal itself, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. (laughs) Uh, Just one quick side question. Uh, You mentioned Ray Gillen coming in and and singing with you guys. Uh, If if you don't know Badlands, anyone listening, you should definitely go check out some of those Badlands songs. I don't don't love all of it, but Jakey Lee was in that band, and he's, of course, a great guitar player, but Ray Gillen's voice was pretty amazing. And so was that the experience live to him coming sitting and just killing it every time? Ray was, he was special. Like, and as great as his voice sounded, he was an even nicer guy. Like he would buy you a beer and talk to you for an hour, like about anything. And he was just so kind, but man, those pipes, like he would come up and like, go, you know, can you guys do war pigs? And we're like, sure. And the second he, you know, starts singing Ozzy's line, everybody's jaw would drop. Cause it was like, <laughs> Like, how is that voice, like, coming out of that, like, unbelievable? Like, Ray was just, he was so cool. Right. Such a great guy. Uh, So let's talk about two guitar bands. Um, Nice segue there. When you you just mentioned you're just you're just trying to poke through sometimes right because you don't want to constantly battle volume like you turn up i'll turn up i turn up you turn up that that sort of thing how did is that something you and lauren talk about like 
on tour or is it something just sort of unspoken that you can figure it out? No, we set up in a venue, we start making some noise. And then if Lauren's making noise first, I'll walk over and go, what are you on? <laughs> He'll go, I'm on three and I'll go, okay. And I'll go back over and I'll go on four. Cause I know Lauren's always going to turn up and play louder than me. <laughs> and then I'll take my guitar volume and I'll roll it down and play real soft during sound check. And then we get on stage and I go, and then it's, and no one ever says anything. And, you know, a lot of times, honestly, Ron being in the middle, he'll turn to me and go, like, turn up. And I'm like, if the singer's telling me to turn up, I'm going to turn up. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Uh, Lauren is a, is a pretty busy guy. He does a lot of these these yeah. punk bands like the, the Dogs. Um, and he's doing shows. I You know, I see him flying around and playing a show here and a show there. And when... When you guys are doing the Crusados or Little Caesar, um, is there? Do you actively say, "Okay, we're done for the next three months. You guys can do whatever you want," or is it more constant communication? How do you handle like like time away from each other? Um, well, we do know we have the Monsters of Rock coming up in February, so we've been talking about that, and we have a Little Caesar—I mean, a Cruzado show at uh, New Year's Eve, mm -hmm. and we also have a live stream deal that's supposed to be happening next week. But at this point, we haven't heard from the people that were putting it on, so we're kind of on hold. So we we do keep in touch regarding, hey, this is coming up. Don't forget about that. Um, and trying to book rehearsals. And, you know, those guys have gotten together and played a couple of times while I've been working because, you know, the day job goes mm. at hours that those guys want to play at. So, you know, but now my new gig on Big Brother, it's only 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. So I'll have time to play music after that, whereas normally I'm, you know, working 3 to 10. So I don't have time to, to, right. to get to the studio to jam with them. So right. happy about that. Right. So, but, but Lauren can just say, okay, I'm just going to go do these. I'm going to do a run with the dogs or I'm going to do whatever. And is that something that you're, that you got, again, you guys are talking about, or is he just talking to Ron and Ron sort of organizing everything? Uh, sometimes we don't even know, honestly, like he, uh, he had a dog show booked and, uh, that band fastball wanted us to play at the coach house with them. And Lauren already had a gig booked. Right. We didn't find out until they called us and, Tony said, hey, can you guys play November 30th? Fastball wants us to open, sold out at the Colch House. And Lauren's like, I got a gig downtown at the Redwood, already booked. I can't get out of it. So, like, what are you going to do? Right. You know, I mean, right. so it's, it's almost like fast food, I think, first come, first serve or whatever. You know, it's right. just like if he's got gigs. Like, I didn't know he had a dog show this Saturday, last Saturday. I didn't even know he had it, you know, because we didn't have anything that was going to interfere with it. So we never talked about it. Right. He's been going out of town a lot with his work with uh, Korg doing, you know, guitar shows and amp shows. So he's been going to Nashville and New York and Chicago. And so that's been keeping him busy, too. So I do think it's fascinating how, again, a so-called legacy band where you guys are established, you know, you can go do shows, right? You know, you can play a show here or go to Europe and, and you have an, an audience. But you're also doing all of these other things and you just kind of make it work. Like the mechanics of organization there seem hard to seem hard to imagine. Right. So I think of Ron on his computer with a spreadsheet saying, OK, Mark's going to be doing this or or Lauren's going to be doing that. You know, I, I'm sure it's not actually that and it's probably more organic than that. But there's a lot of moving parts for right. for for a legacy band. Well, you know, I mean. 
in my book right now, I have February a week. I know I can't book any shows because we're doing Monsters of Rock. I know April, I'm not going to book anything because I know Cruzados are going to Europe. So I'm not even going to like consider if somebody offers me a gig. And then September. So, you know, it was a year out. Ron said, clear your schedules. Make sure you don't book anything because right. from September 10th till, you know, October 3rd, we're going to be in Europe again. So we all mark our calendars, you know, to not take gigs during that. And if somebody, you know, if Lauren said, oh, I forgot I booked a gig, it's too fucking bad. We already made this agreement that we're going to Europe, you know. So, so it wouldn't happen, you know, like that. But... You know, I mean, look what happened with Tom, you know, his poor mom passed away while we were gone, you know, and we'd had that book for almost two years, technically speaking, you know, and if he had gone with us, it would have been, it would have been really bad. We probably would have had to all come back and, you know, it would have been even worse for Tom because he wouldn't have been there with his mom, you know, right. so right. luckily we were able to get another drummer to play, so. Right. Cool. Okay. Um then let's let's finish up this this episode talking about um, some guitar lesson stuff. Uh, as as I mentioned in my recent podcast with um, with Dan Formica, I'm going to start taking uh, singing lessons with him. Um, yeah. I've gotten to the point with you with my guitar lessons that I actually sometimes feel like I'm better, and then sometimes I feel like I'm a lot worse. But mostly I feel like like I'm I'm better, right? At, at, at what point for you as a teacher do you ever feel like um, with any of your students, you should go to a different teacher now? You know, you need to learn something else. Do you, have you ever done that with, with any of your students? I, I can't say that I ever have. And not because I, I, I feel connected to my students in a way that if they want to learn something, I'm going to figure it out and teach it to them, you know? And I mean, I haven't really come across to anybody. I mean, if somebody said they want, uh, he, for, for instance, classical, I had somebody who said, oh, I want to, I want to really learn classical guitar and go to college for it. I'm like, I'm definitely not the guy, you know? But if somebody was at, at a level where they're like, I want to learn how to play jazz, I know where to start and send them off. And if they get to the point where they were so advanced, then I probably would suggest let's find another teacher. But Knock on wood, I've, I haven't really gotten gotten that yet where I've gotten somebody, I ha I've gotten a student to a level that I haven't been able to help them. Okay, okay, that makes sense. I mean, I bet you're experiencing it now with, with me because I'm getting to that point. <laughs> Okay. I, I mean, honestly, I, I stay up every night going, how can I show Paul something new? Because he is such a vast ocean of knowledge of the guitar and, and music that where do I go? Such, such I nonsense for, for my question today. <laughs> what happens when I flatten the seventh? And it's just like, I mean, it's just the most basic question. And I get that. But it's but but uh I think it's the repetitive nature is the most important thing, Paul. Right. And like I told Charlie today, I, I started working music theory with him. And I said, look, it took me 20, 30 times of this same stupid thing over and over again till it all of a sudden clicked and made sense. And that's the thing is it's just like I just have to keep kind of hitting you with it. And eventually you're going to go, oh, that. Oh, my. Oh, oh, it all. It's like a puzzle that all connects, right. you know. But it takes a while to see all those pieces interlocked, you know, because – it's it's convoluted. There's a lot of stuff that's the same. There's a lot of terms that really throw us, you know, when, you know, 
trying to teach him the major scale. And I'm like, you can say, you know, the note names, C, D, E, F, G, A, B for C major, or you can call it one, two, three, four, five, six, mm -hmm. seven, or you can call it, you know, majors and minors, you know, d depending, you know, major second, ma minor third, you know, depending on how those notes all uh, intergalactically reach each other. So there's so many different ways of saying the exact same thing. Right. And I think that's the most confusing thing about music is that it's a, uh, we're about to have a dog cat fight in a second, by the way. <laughs> the dog, there's a little standoff we got going right here. Yes. He's, he's, uh, he's re ready to attack a cat. So, um, uh, yeah. but yeah, you know. Yeah, so going along with that, when you, you first started doing lessons back uh, when you were working at Sam Ash, that was sort of the, the catalyst for you doing lessons. And, and we did mm -hmm. talk about that in a previous episode. And you've had a lot of students over the years since then, of course. But th were there ever ones where you just felt like, you know, this person doesn't actually want to learn guitar. Like they don't like they want, they have the idea that they want to play guitar, but they don't actually want to spend any time. Right. Well, I can, I can top that. I, uh, there was a point where guitar hero was big and parents felt that if you're going to play a video game, learn the real instrument. And mm -hmm. I had students that completely had no interest in learning guitars. I would spend an hour with them just pulling my hair out, trying to show them a couple chords and they'd want to talk to me about video games or school or the weather or whatever, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm here to show you this instrument so you can learn it. And here's these three chords. Oh yeah, I didn't practice this week. You know, do you play video games? Yeah. Oh man, I played this and I played, and it's like, well, you had time to practice, but you didn't, you know, you didn't play guitar, you know? So Right. So it's, it's, it's interesting. I've had people who get frustrated, you know, that it is hard to learn and, you know, they can't understand the concept of just practicing it, you know, like in the lesson, they'll go, I can't do it. It's impossible. And, you know, I have to explain that your brain repairs itself. The more you do this repetitively, the more your brain's going to understand how to connect these, you know, synapses and make this work for you. But you have to stick with it. You can't just try it two times and go screw it. Because I don't know how many times a student will see me play like a flashy lick and they go, I want to learn that. And it's like you've been playing a couple of weeks. You know, you you kind of have to have a little bit of dexterity. It's, it's practice. You know, it's yeah. not just it's not instant, you know, and, and that can be frustrating to some people, especially because things are so instant these days. So it's like, right. you know, you can play Guitar Hero and right away you put it on easy and you're playing a tune and you're like thinking, hey, I can play more than a feeling or whatever, you know, but right. you pick up a guitar and it's a lot different and you have to practice and you have to work on it. And it's so, so yeah, so I've, I've definitely run into that with more than a few students. And then one last thing here, the reason you and I started this podcast was because we would talk in, in the lesson and we, you know, you tell me all these stories and I thought, man, other people should hear these stories because they're so funny and, and great. But how many people, how much time do you spend like just talking to people, like doing bartender therapy, you know, as uh, it were, you know, do, do you, is that part of a lesson? I would say, it's depending on the student and the lesson itself, it can either be a big part of the lesson or it can not even be touched upon. You know, like if I'm doing like say music theory and somebody's super interested in it, or I'm teaching a song and somebody's super interested in it, we don't get all that much chat. But if I'm teaching a scale and the student doesn't give a shit, he wants to start talking about stuff or, you know, homework sucks, my mom's being mean. I mean, there was definitely a point where I, I remember saying like to some friends going, 
it's sort of like being a therapist just as much as being a music right. teacher. And I've had students that would tell me that, like, I, you know, you're my half out. Like I, I would teach older students like moms and dads who would go, you're my piece, you know, like the half hour or the hour I get to work on guitar with you is the only time I don't have to like take care of the kids or take care of work right. or pay bills or do what's expected of me. I just get to hang and we put on ACDC and I try to play it for an hour. And that's, that's the only thing I got is that week, you know, so lessons would, would turn into an hour of practice if they weren't just talk, you right. know, which, which I'm fine with, you know, because I want you to practice. And if you're getting an hour practicing in a week and it's just with me, I mean, you're not getting your money's worth because I could be teaching you new stuff, but I see an improvement because we are spending that hour right. playing back in black, you know, and right. that's something you've always wanted to do. So let's, you know, I, I mean, I think my philosophy has always been to play what's going to inspire you to play. I took guitar lessons when I was six or seven and I learned three songs and it so inspired me that I was obsessive with it. But then when I went to take formal lessons, when I was like nine or 10 with like the, the local classical person, I hated it because they were like, here's the C major scale and here's how it applies. And here's how you do this minor scale. And this is how, and I was like, I remember saying, I don't want to play anymore. And I think for a couple of years, I kind of just dabbled here and there. And then Jim Shepley moved to town, my mom's friend who taught Dwayne Allman. And he was like, oh, your kid wants to learn blues, send him over, you know? And it was like, here's the pentatonic scale. Oh, 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 and I can use those notes. This all now makes sense. This is a roadmap. Right. And oh, you know, and and so then when he taught me theory, I was interested because I was already playing the tunes I wanted to play and understanding it a little more rather than just being like, here is what music is all about, you know? And it's like, you, you can't teach a 10-year-old kid theory right, right away right. that that's going to be, you know, the way to, the way to go. I'm ready to learn some Alan Holdsworth, okay? So I think I can I think okay. I can pull it off. <laughs> Work on those finger stretches, okay? As long as you, you can stretch from the fifth to the fifteenth fret, you'll be good. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Uh, this standoff is incredible, by the way. The cat's sleeping and the dog is just staring him down like he wants to jump on him. But the cat just does not care. And he's sitting and Zeus is the dog is standing up looking, sitting down looking, standing up looking. He just gave a little burf, burf. But we'll see Zeus. what happens. I'll let you guys know in a couple weeks. Yeah, I think definitely let us know if there was a if there was a, a big fight. You hear the crying going on here? It's okay, buddy. Leave her alone. It's okay. I want to thank everyone who's listening to Dogs and Cats Fighting and also the rest of the podcast. Um, your support is very much appreciated. Please continue to do so. Please tell your friends about us and, and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Thanks to Mark Tremalia, uh for hanging out once again. Um, and being, thank you, Paul Neal. Being my turkey, my, uh, my turkey this week. <laughs> I'm definitely a turkey. You got that right. <laughs> Jive turkey. All right. All right, man. Be safe. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you, Paul. Bye.